Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. Volume 9, Chapter 19, The Phantom Shark Kenwood took instant command. Van! South entrance, quick! Where's Galima? The driver appeared holding one hand to his bleeding temple. Galima, get to the village! Galima looked dazed. Kenwood switched to pigeon French. Galima's face cleared, and he started off at a dead run in the direction from which Scotty had come. He can't get far, Kenwood said crisply. The reef has only two openings. Van can pick up some Kanaka boys and block the south entrance with a couple of logs. It's only eight feet wide. The people in the village can block the north entrance by sinking the canoes in it. He'll be trapped. Gerald, take Van's car. It's faster. Get to Pida. There's a phone in the food store. Call Dumaya. Get the American Council. Ask him to hurry down to the dock and deputize the skipper of the Tartan. Tell him it's a matter of life and death. Say they're to come to the north entrance of Port Laguerre. It's on their charts. Tell him to break out a troll. We'll get that ruddy bloke. We'll get him good. Call the Bunyard first, Rick said quickly. Ask for the Englishman with the beard. That's Dr. Warren. I'll go with him, Chana said. He ran for the car, the big American following. Rick stared out to where the craft had vanished. Beyond, a quarter mile away, he could see the foam where the breakers shattered on the reef. Oh, I knew he was a bad one. I should have wrung his neck a long time ago, Kenwood said. That's your craft, isn't it? Rick asked. That's right. Rick nodded. You and Vanderklaffens together, you're the Phantom Shark. You've been pulling a fast one on people for years. He was remembering a lot of things. The tales of horror about the Phantom Shark had come from Kenwood and Vanderklaffens themselves. It was all a deliberate myth which they had spread. That was your schooner we saw at Nanatiki, wasn't it? Rick went on. You were collecting pearls. But how did you make it look like a catch? Jack, the mate of the tarpon, isn't fooled that easily. Kenwood grinned. Might be possible for a man to ride up a spare gaff and lash into one mast so the rigging wouldn't look the same, especially if he expected visitors. He might expect visitors, Scotty said, if he thought his plan to damage the tarpon might fail. The cables were cut all right, but the trawler didn't back over the steel shore boat. Kenwood quickly changed the subject. Let's hike up to the village. I want to make sure the Kanakas have the reef passage blocked so we can't slip through. How long can that thing stay down? Rick asked. Several hours. There's air refreshing chemicals inside and a bottle of oxygen. I'm betting Nondo plans to lay on the bottom until dark. Then he can surface, open the hatch, and swim away. It's like a fish in the water. Mr. Kenwood, 
You admitted that metal shark is yours. Now how about telling us how it works? We saw it once at Nanatiki. I know, Kenwood said, grinning. I was in it. I surfaced to take a lick and there you were, lined up on the beach. So down I went again. Anyway, I'm kind of proud of this shark. It's my own, from stem to stern, made with my own hands. The Australian had been inland on Guadalcanal and the Solomons, trading with the natives when he had come across the wreckage of an airplane. It was an old P-40, its nose painted to resemble a shark with open mouth. He examined it and found that the fuselage was intact. Evidently, the engine and wings had been removed, possibly because of a ground loop or some other operational accident. The idea sprung into being as he examined the wreck. Near Henderson Field, he found a dump full of the wreckage of planes. It was overgrown with weeds and a forgotten part of the war for Guadalcanal. Planes shot down in dogfights over the field. Other planes shot to pieces on the ground, and still others lost in accidents had contributed to the pile. He chose the best and biggest pieces of aluminum and had them hauled with the P-40 fuselage out of his ship. A letter to a friend in Australia had brought the parts and tools he needed. The first step was to seal the fuselage, first by riveting aluminum sheets over all the openings, and then by the liberal use of caulking materials and plastic paint. He built a deck of aluminum inside the fuselage and made it watertight, and then added a hatch sealed with a rubber gasket and a nose of molded plastic. The compartment under the deck was left open, and the portion near the tail drilled with holes. Thus, above the deck, the craft was watertight. Underneath, the sea was free to run in and out. He had contrived claws operated from the watertight compartment, and so set them so that they could rake material into the open bottom part. He put a junk rudder on top as a stabilizer. He added horizontal stabilizers that worked like a plane's ailerons from inside the ship. Finally, he used an English-made electric motor that ran from an ordinary automobile battery and geared it to a small ship's propeller. The addition of the simple rudder and the craft was ready, except for one thing, it floated on top of the water. By experiment, he found the amount of lead needed to balance its buoyancy and arranged it so that it would just float. A push would send it under the water, and that push was given by the propeller, when the screw turned over and the horizontal stabilizers properly set, the craft went to the bottom without trouble. It handled easily and it could turn with amazing speed and grace. Shut off the motor and the craft would rise to the surface very easily when the bottom compartment was empty, very slowly and sluggishly when loaded with shells. Down to 30 phantoms it worked like a charm. Below that the pressure was too great and the craft leaked dangerously. The device was carried in the kookaburra's hold, except when in ports where strangers were apt to go aboard. In such places like Numea, the shark was dropped over while outside the harbor and taken to a safe place. Rick was enthralled. It was clever and practical. To collect pearl shell, the craft could crawl along the bottom, even holding itself down with the claws, its motor shut off. While one claw held, the other could break pearl oysters loose from their rocks and push them back into the open mouth of the bottom compartment. The aircraft construction could withstand pressure, and it wouldn't bother the man inside. 
When they reached the village, they found it deserted. Everyone was at the waterfront. As they walked down to the water, they could see the villagers in canoes flustered around one spot. At the sight of them, a canoe broke away and paddled to shore. Galima was in it with two Kanakas. Galima reported in dialect. Ken would translate it. They've sunk four canoes and loaded them with rocks. They've spread all the fishing nets in the village. He can't get through here, and Van wouldn't let him through the other end. Do these people know about the Phantom Shark? Rick asked curiously. Kenwood smiled. They know me, which is even better. The sound of a racing motor made them turn. Vanderclaffen's car was speeding toward them, a cloud of dust marking its passage. It roared into the village and skidded to a stop near them. Gerald and Chada got out. They're coming, Chada said excitedly. Anything happen? Not a thing, said Scotty. Gerald explained. We caught them at the restaurant as they were ready to leave. The United States Council was already there. Dr. Warren is anxious to cooperate. They're coming at top speed. Any idea how long it'll take them? That craft should do about 14 knots wide open, Kenwood said. And it's about eight miles by water. I'd say 40 minutes at the outside. Rick looked at his watch. An incredible number of things had happened since they first stepped ashore. Hours should have passed. But his watch told him it had only been a few minutes after half-past two. At first, he shook the watch to see if it was running. But Scotty and Gerald's watches said the same thing. Then, as he figured back, he realized it hadn't been yet noon when they had left Le Bagnard. Just to have something to talk about, Rick asked, Were all your pearls and money in that box? Gerald scowled. I thought he had my strong box in the house. I don't know when he had time to bury it. That's why I've been watching the house for his boss to show up. I wasn't going to let the shark get away with it. Well, I'll blame you, Kenwood said. When Van turned on Nondo, the rat must have figured out the jig was up for fair. He knew that with Van and me on his trail, he didn't have a chance. Gerald looked keenly at the Australian. You and Van, huh? Kenwood shrugged. A concerted shout from the reef brought them all up to the edge of the water. The tarpon running outside the reef was pushing toward them at top speed. Let's get a canoe, Rick said excitedly. We want to go out to meet them. Kenwood let out a piercing whistle. In a moment, a big canoe broke away and came to shore. Rick, Scotty, Kenwood, Chada, and Gerald got in. Paddles dipped. The canoe moved out to the reef to meet the incoming tarpon. Kenwood gave instructions to the stern paddler, then translated for the boy's benefit. I'll tell him to have his men clear the channel just long enough for Warren's trawler to enter, and then to close it again. As they passed the break in the reef, Rick looked down. Loaded canoes on the bottom anchored an impenetrable mass of nets. There must have been more than a dozen nets all spread together, he thought. How deep is that? he asked. It's about twenty feet, Kenwood answered. The trawler will make it without scraping the canoes. The canoe passed over the channel and went to meet the tarpon as it throttled down. As the group climbed aboard, the entire crew of scientists and sailors met them all asking questions at once. Rick introduced Gerald to Dr. Warren and to Skipper Tom Bishop. The boyish-looking United States Council shook hands with the floor-faced businessman. 
What kind of scrape are you in this time, Mr. Gerald? A matter of robbery, growled Gerald. I think Mr. Kenwood had better assume charge, Dr. Warren said. He evidently knows these waters better than anyone else. Kenwood nodded. First, let's get through that reef. Got a troll rigged? If I guess right, he'll be lying on the bottom, probably holding down with the claws. Chances are you'll tear the net some, but I don't think he can hold against the drag. Right, don't worry about the net. What first? First we have to locate him. The lagoon isn't wide. Go up the middle of it. We'll keep an eye peeled. Greatest depth is only about six fathoms. It's clear, so we should be able to see him down there. Right, Tom Bishop took command. Jack Pualani went into the wheelhouse. The native chieftain signaled that the passage was clear, and the tarpon drifted through it. Instantly, the nets were swung back into position again. All hands, except those needed in the ship's operation, lined the rails. Jack steered a course straight down the center of the reef-locked water. Rick strained to see, but there was no sign of a metal shark. If there had been, he would have seen it because the bottom was clearly visible in the limpid water. Once they passed a real shark, a fish about six feet long. Then they were at the other end, and Vanderclaffens hailed them. No sign of him! Try the other side, near the reef! Good idea, Kenwood agreed. Dinner and let's go back, Skipper. Tom Bishop shouted an order. The tarpon heeled over and reversed course. Rick ran to the reef side of the ship. They steamed down its length about a hundred feet off. Out beyond the reef, he saw a tiny strip of island, like the atoll at Nanatiki. Then, as they neared the halfway mark, Scotty let out a piercing yell from the bow. There it is! In a moment, Rick saw it too. The silver shark was lying on the bottom, nestled against the reef. Tom Bishop scratched his head. Bigger than I would have thought. But the net'll hold it all right, if we can get the net under it. Jack Pulani tossed over a small package of marker dye. Instantly, a yellow stain spread in the water, right over the silver shark. The tarpon reversed course again, on Kenwood's advice. Easier to pick her up from the stern, he said. Tail is high enough so the net can get under it. Seaman stood by an otter trawl, a big V-shaped net with a mouth spread over sixty feet, designed to stay on the bottom. Off the New England coast, nets like this were used to catch flounders and other bottom feeders. But Rick doubted if any otter trawl had ever been put to a use like this. When the tarpon was in position to come up behind the shark, Tom Bishop shouted, Full ahead! The trawler leaped ahead. Over with the net! The trawl splashed into the water. The wake of the ship caught the big net. The doorboard spread it wide. It dipped toward the bottom, and the heavy tow ropes tightened. Then he saw Scotty step from the cabin, and in his hands was a harpoon, brought along for a possible catch of swordfish. The young man walked to the side and looked over. Coming up on it, Tom Bishop yelled. The yellow dye was all around the and shuddered. The tow line saw a triumphant yell. It's in the hall, Tom Bishop shouted. The winch roared, but the net was coming in. The yellow dye was around them now. The net caught and the tarpon shuddered. The tow line strummed taut. Scotty gave a triumphant yell. 
It's in the net. Oh, Tom Bishop shouted. Rick ran to the stern. Chada, Barbie, Dr. and Mrs. Ward and the others beside him. The winch roared and the ropes creaked with strain, but the net was coming in. Full lad, Tom Bishop bellowed. The tarpon had to keep moving to keep the net from being tangled with the screws. Slowly the big net came up, and in it gleamed the aluminum shark. It broke water, and in that instant a hatch on its top opened. The half-cast thrust the upper part of his body through, and the pistol in his hand covered the group on the deck. Scotty's arm rocked back and flashed forward, and as he threw the harpoon he gave it a slight twist. It flashed through the air, slanting sideways. The heavy shaft smashed into Nando's shoulder and dropped into the water. Scotty started to climb over the rail. Tom Bishop yelled, Stop the engines! Rick stepped back and took a running dive and flashed over the rail in a perfect dive. He knifed into the water right next to the net. A few strokes brought him into it. Scotty climbed to the rail and jumped after him. Then Jack, Kenwood, Gerald, and Carl Ackerman were in the water, too. Rick reached Nando first. He brushed off a powerful swing as though it were a mosquito. He took the half-cast by the throat and gave a mighty heave. Nando came out of the shark, feet dangling. Scotty struggled to reach them through the tangling mass of net. He edged through the net to Rick's side. Rick turned and grinned, but he didn't let go of Nando. I'm just educating this bird a little. Nando's head dropped limply to his shoulders. You better wait until he comes through, or he's going to be in no condition to learn anything, Scotty said. Hang on, Jack Pulani called. The two ropes tightened, lifting the net almost out of the water. Carl Ackerman and Kenwood took Nando and passed him to the deck. Jack pushed to Scotty's side, and they joined Rick. They were all consumed with curiosity to have a look at the shark resting quietly and innocently in the trawler's net. Chapter 20 The Secret of the Lagoon Scotty accepted another helping of Rosette Sauté from the governor's houseboy. The Warrens, Barbie, Rick, Scotty, Chada, Vander Claffens, Gerald, the governor, the scientists, and the American Council were dining in state in the governor's palace in the cool of the evening. Everyone was in a relaxed mood after the events of a strenuous day. Two of the guests bore slight evidence of physical damage that had been inflicted during the course of the day, but they seemed none the worse for wear. Barbie was the only one who seemed inclined to be a bit resentful over the passive part she had played in the day's exciting events but her frequent reproachful glances in her brother's direction could not conceal a certain look of smugness that she wore. Rick had been waiting for the conversation to get back to the subject of the Phantom Shark. He turned to the governor. Now that Nando's in jail for robbery, is there anything going to be done about his charges that Mr. Kenwood and Mr. Vanderclaffens are the Phantom Shark and they work for them? After all, Gerald interrupted quickly. Is that any of our business, young man? The governor, he nodded to the Frenchman sitting at the head of the table, seems to feel that the so-called Phantom Shark has committed no crime. I have my pearls back safe and sound, and... Yes, you have your pearls back, 
such as they are, Barbie broke in. Everybody just stared at the American girl questioningly. Then Scotty remarked, There are some explanations due, seems to me, from the men who operated as the Phantom Shark. Isn't anyone curious besides me? I am burning like a firecracker with much curiosity, Chada said. So am I, Jack Pulani agreed. I want to know about that incident in Honolulu, Big Tom Bishop added. And I want to know why all this running around in dark clothes and masks and stuff, with a lagoon full of pearls you could sell in the open market. Why bother? Rick looked at Kenwood. Lanky Australian frowned. Even though the identity of the Phantom Shark was known, he evidently didn't want to divulge too much concerning his activities. There was still a mystery here, he thought. Barbie gave Rick an elaborate wink. He stared at her. She had a pleased little girl look that indicated that plainly she, Barbara Brandt, had a secret. Then he remembered how mysterious she had been aboard the ship. Rick, she suggested, you've guessed a lot about the Phantom Shark's activities. Tell Mr. Kenwood and Mr. Vanderclaffens how much you've guessed. They don't have to admit anything, of course. Rick took a sip of water, stalling for a moment to sum up in his mind just how much he knew, or thought he knew. Well, he said finally, putting everything together, all the pieces, it seems to me that we never heard any specific details of the Phantom Shark's crimes except from two people, Mr. Kenwood and Mr. Vanderclaffens. But Bartholomew had a lot to say, Scotty objected, and when we asked the hotel proprietor, he was scared stiff. I know. I think that Mr. Kenwood and Mr. Vanderclaffens started all the talk deliberately building up a legend of a terrible, mysterious criminal. You know how stories like that spread. Amazing deduction, Kenwood said. Go on. Am I right so far? When Kenwood and Vanderclaffens only smiled, Rick went on. Anyway, with a legend like that built up, word was sure to get around, particularly to tourists, about the man who sold wonderful pearls at a low price. Men like Gerald would be a sucker for a sale. They'd rather get a bargain by buying stolen goods than to pay a slightly higher legal price. Only I still don't know why, with a lagoon like Nanatiki, the pearls couldn't be sold in a legitimate market. I do, Barbie said. Dr. Warren nodded. She does, and so do I. But I must admit it was Barbie's quick mind that grasped the possibilities, and she was the one with courage enough to risk losing us a lot of money. Rick, Scotty, Chada, and the others just looked at Barbie. She blushed with pleasure. Then she reached into her handbag and brought out a pillbox. She opened it and turned it over on the tablecloth. One half of a pearl fell out. So, you really do now, Kenwood exclaimed. Well, that does it, then. Rick still didn't know. What does half a pearl mean? And why was it cut in half? There were too many pearls in that lagoon, Dr. Warren said. But that's Barbie's story. I'd better let her tell it. Bill Duncan suddenly laughed. Oh, I get it now. Rick certainly didn't. Eh, so do I, old Carl Ackerman exclaimed. Why didn't I think of that first? They're cultivated. They're not real at all. Mrs. Warren gasped. 
Not real? But of course they're real. Just look at them. Gerald jumped to his feet. What do you mean the Phantom Shark's pearls aren't real? He roared. Vanderclaffen sighed. And there goes our secret. So it seems, the Aussie grinned. Just our luck to run up against a gang of small yanks. He turned to Gerald. Your money'll be refunded, he said coldly. But what I want to know is, how did you ever figure out they were cultivated? That was Barbie's story. It was in my book, Daughter of the Moon. It's all about pearls, and it said that they were so valuable because they were rare as well as beautiful. Then it went on to say that the value of pearls has gone way down because a Japanese named Mikimoto, or something like that, discovered how to grow pearls. It said he harvested enough pearls every year to break the market completely and make them cheaper than sand if he sold all of them. Very true, Carl Ackerman said. Natural pearls are an accident, but pearls can be cultivated. But the cultivated ones are not as good, Mrs. Warren objected. A popular belief without much basis in truth, Fander Claffins corrected. If it had been true, the phantom shark would scarcely have made a living. The fact is, a pearl is a pearl. It is nothing more than layers of knacker, with the layers of protein knacker form around a grain of sand that got into the shell by chance, or around a tiny bottom of mother of pearl placed there deliberately. It is quite immaterial. Correct, Canwood said. If the pearl is removed too soon, the little ball of shell or mother of pearl might be close enough to the surface to spoil the luster. But let the pearl grow with layer of layer of knacker, and even an expert who doesn't know the origin of the pearl can tell whether it's natural or cultivated. Rick had read of cultivated pearls. The oyster was taken from the water when very young and small. They were called sprats at that stage. Then the shell was opened and a tiny grain of material inserted, after which the oyster was put back into the water to grow to maturity, and perhaps to grow a pearl around the artificial irritant. There must be someone able to tell if a pearl is real. No, not real, natural. All pearls, if they come from oysters, are real. They may be either natural or cultivated, Vanderclaffens corrected. However, there is one man who can tell, and only one. That is the man who drills the pearl so it can be threaded in a necklace. Why can he tell? Scotty asked. Because in a natural pearl, the irritant is so tiny it can hardly be seen, like a wisp of dust in one's eye, small but irritating. Where our eye would water, the oyster produces knacker, which hardens into the material of pearl. Thus, when the driller goes into the center of a real pearl, he usually finds nothing. When he goes into the center of a cultivated one, he finds the artificial irritant. If he says nothing, and what driller would, since it is not his business to question, no one would ever know. And that, Rick thought, was the Phantom Shark's greatest secret. The Dutchman and the Aussie had been selling cultivated pearls as real ones, and because they had built up the myth the Phantom Shark was a real pearl pirate, getting the high price of real pearls for them. There was a moment of silence, and Gerald was examining Barbie's half-pearl through a pocket magnifying glass, with a dazed look in his eyes. 
How did you dare to cut a pearl? Daniel Claffins asked. Suppose you had been wrong, my dear. You would have destroyed a small fortune. We thought about that, Barbie told him. I was really frightened. But I was sure, too, sort of. So Dr. Warren and I made a pact not to tell anybody, and we put the pearl in a vice and filed it down, and we found a little piece of shell in the middle. And I was thinking I'd found the best pearl bed in the world, Jack Poor Lady groaned. You're right, Kenwood said. It is. The Japanese beds are fairly shallow. They use a different kind of oyster, too. Ours are as close to nature as you can get. And we haven't been greedy. Man and I seeded the bed several years ago, but we've hardly touched it. Mrs. Warren shook her head. Even though you haven't murdered people or robbed divers, it seems to me you're guilty just the same. You've been selling cultivated pearls for real ones, and that is most certainly larceny of some sort. Mander Claffins answered her. You are right, Mrs. Warren. We only have one excuse. We have sold our pearls to unscrupulous men who were more than willing to buy what they thought were stolen goods. Take our friend Gerald here, for example. He bought our pearls, and from the stories he heard, stories which we spread with the help of our Kanaka employees and the natives of Laguerre, he surely believed he was buying real pearls stained with the blood of murdered divers. And yet he still bought them. The legend we built up was merely to convince such men that our pearls were real. Kenwood broke in. You Americans have a word for it. You call a bloke like that a man with larceny in his soul. At first we planned a legitimate cultivated pearl business. We were both divers in our younger days, and we went down in the lagoon in suits and planted our bed. Then a rich Australian approached me and asked, Did I know where he could get pearls? He hinted he wouldn't mind getting some illegal ones at a lower price. I turned him down, but the idea stuck. Then after the war, I got the idea for the shark, simply as a means of harvesting the bed more easily than a suit diver could. And one thing led to another, you might say. And who cut our cables? Tom Bishop asked abruptly. Nondo, Kenwood replied, at our suggestion to be sure. Jared was hot after enough pearls to finish his necklace, and it meant a fortune to us. But we had to delay you a bit, because I couldn't afford to have you buzzing around on a tiki while I was collecting pearls. Man told Nonda to slip below and steal your engine injectors, knowing you probably wouldn't have more than a single spare. We planned to have the injectors found later by accident, but Nondo got a real bright idea and cut the cables with a cutter out of your own tool chest. Then he fixed it with two of his pals to be in the way when you backed out. But those men might have been killed, exclaimed Rick. Kenwood shrugged. Nando was too smart for his own good, Vander Claffin said, and for ours. But for him, the Phantom Shark would still be the mythical terror of the South Seas. Why did he jump me that night at Aunt's Mata? The Dutchman shrugged. I think your guess was right about him planning to rob Gerald. I also think from what you have told me, he thought you had seen his face. He knew you and I were friendly, and possibly feared you would mention it to me, as you had told me of his presence on the dock, which I knew about, of course. So the moment of panic, he attacked you. My guess, too, Kenwood agreed. Nando is mighty smart, but he gets flustered easily. Jack Pulani spoke up. Mind telling me about the Honolulu affair? There's nothing much to it, 
Kenwood said. Got in touch with the man by bribing a servant at the hotel to leave a note. Then on the morning of the day he was supposed to trade his money for the pearls, I went out in the shock, anchored the can. I had fixed it in the claws, so all I had to do was drop it. The can floated, and the lump of coral I used for an anchor sank. Then I watched for the kookaburra until I saw him make the trade. After when I got the shark, went out, surfaced just long enough to scoop up the can. The rope sheared easily in the claws. I didn't mind him watching me through the glasses. It was good advertising. Now that the partners had opened up, there were other questions. Kenwood explained about the trip to Nanatiki. He had put into Vila to drop a passenger, then he had run directly to the atoll in his fast schooner with a shark aboard, arriving only a few hours before the tarpon showed up. He had harvested pearls for four days, then sailed to Espirito Santo and handed the crop to an inter-island plane pilot who delivered them to Vanderklaffens. The Dutchmen admitted their fright when Rick told them of Gerald's disappearance. Vanderklaffens hadn't even waited for Kenwood. He had gone to the house, then, not finding him there, he had jumped into his car and driven to the Laguerre hideout, where Nando usually stayed. Both men had suspected Nando at once. They had long ago suspected he might be overly ambitious. "'What are you going to do now?' Chada inquired. At this point, Gerald got to his feet. His face had a beaten look, the look of a child who learns for the first time that there is no Santa Claus. "'I'll tell you what they're going to do. First of all, they're going to give back every cent I paid them for their ten-cent store trash. Then I'm going to hound these two slimy crooks from the South Seas if it takes me the rest of my life to do it.' The man's face was getting redder and redder as his anger mounted. I can't expect to get any cooperation for these two-for-a-nickel fringies, he pointed with a trembling forefinger at the governor. But there's no room out here for thieves. I'm an American citizen, and I know my rights, and... Here, Barbie interrupted. I wouldn't boast about that, Mr. Gerald. Seems to me you encouraged these men in what they did, and that you deserved what you got. She sat down, blushing furiously. That will do, Barbara said Dr. Warren gently as he got to his feet. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but we shall have to be going aboard the top, and I realize that the code of morals varies in various parts of the world. Personally, I think my wife is right in her belief that selling cultivated pearls for natural ones is common thievery and ought to be punished. I agree also with Rick that Mr. Van der Claffen's attempt to damage our ship seriously was a desperate and criminal thing to do. However, if Mr. Kenwood and Mr. Van der Claffens are willing to assume the cost of new cables and the slight damage to our nets, I am not inclined to press charges against them at this time. I am willing to leave them to the tender mercies of Mr. Gerald. I regret that what started out to be a pleasant occasion, gentlemen, has ended on an unhappy note. As Rick said goodbye to the two partners, Kenwood grinned. Say long, Cobber. You're not a bad bloke for a yank. I was fast thinking this afternoon. Joe was about to get nasty when you popped in. We'll always owe you something for that, Vanderclaffen shook hands. Good trip home, all of you. Rick thought of the Dutchman's final words as they walked through the darkened streets toward the ship. Chada was leaving too, but he wasn't going in the same direction. He reminded the Hindu boy of that. 
Charter chuckled in the darkness. I won't stay away long. Where goes Rick and Scotty? There goes much excitement. Excitement is becoming a habit, like breathing. I am liking it. Pretty soon my stay at home in India will get dull, and I will be back. Excitement is wonderful, Barbie agreed. You should know, Scotty said dryly. Jack Pulani spoke up. Sorry to see you kids leave. The old ship won't be the same. Not same for us either, Charter agreed. The big excitement is over. The terrible phantom shark turns out to be two business peoples with most strange kind of advertising. It was a real adventure, Barbie said dreamily. The kind I've always dreamed about. Even the dinner was better than any I've ever eaten. What was that meat, anyway? It tasted like chicken, but it wasn't. What did Mr. Vanderclaffens call it? Rosette Sauté, Scotty remembered. What does that mean? Jack Pulani stifled a laugh. It means flying fox. Barbie stopped short. You don't mean we actually ate a fox? Not exactly, Jack said. It's the uh, local name for a very large type of fruit bat. Bat? Barbie choked. Rick laughed. You don't mind a little thing like eating bat, do you? That's adventure, Toehead. Real adventure. Rick grinned as Barbie broke away from them and walked away toward the ship, a slim, proud figure with her pert nose in the air. Eating flying fox definitely had curbed Barbie's desire for adventure. And now that they were going home, far away from adventurous lands, he and Scotty would have to be contented with a more placid mode of living. Not being a very good prophet, Rick couldn't know that events were already shaping up not far from Spindrift Island that would involve them in the strange adventure of the Smuggler's Reef. The End We hope you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.